everybody. Welcome to our first podcast of, uh, of the run-up to the 2020 Omnichannel X Omnichannel Conference. I'm here today with Margot Bloomstein, a respected colleague and uh, of mine, who I'm very excited to have for you today. So Margot is uh, the founder and director of Appropriate Inc. based out of Boston, and she's also the author of Content Strategy at Work, which is one of the one of the seminal um, content strategy books that you should all have in your content strategy library. Um, I thought that Margot was a perfect speaker for this conference because she aligns with what we're kind of all about. So to remind you what Omnichannel X was founded for is that we saw in the conference landscape this gap where we were having many, many events that were around a particular job role. So we had UX events, we had content strategy events, we had content marketer events, and um, that's kind of how we conceived the work. But we felt that when we were doing you know the side conversations talking in the meeting rooms talking to the clients actually going and doing the work out in the field what people were saying was that it's the customer experience and how we all come together around that that was the real problem that's where the uh, you know that's that's where we were having challenges is that we might be very good at content strategy um, or we might be very good at design or we might be good at good process and systems but it's connecting the dots, bringing it all together, making actual uh, unified experiences work. Uh, that, that was a challenge. So by omni-channel, then to differentiate versus multi-channel, cross-platform, multi-platform, format agnostic, what we mean at Omnichannel X is that it's uh, a strategy that's coming together around the customer, that it's a customer-centric holistic system that um, takes the channels, even if it's only two or three channels that you're using, it doesn't have to be all the channels that exist in the world, but the channels that you're using um, come together to become more than the sum of their parts. They're not in parallel, but they contribute to each other and they add up to something uh, better for the customer who chooses to, to use them and can move around them uh, in a way which is coherent, consistent, and add, adds value to them regardless of how they choose to interact. Now, Margot is a specialist in um, how you communicate uh, and, and building strategies for that content, regardless of where it's going to be consumed. So I immediately thought of her when I was thinking of uh, keynotes for the, uh, for the 2020 conference. So I'll stop talking now. And, and please, Margot, I'd like you to, to, to say hi to everybody. Sure. Hi, everyone. And um, hello, Naz. Thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time to speak today. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, I'm so glad you could have the time to talk about us. I would like to uh, thank you. I know you've only got uh, about uh, you know 30-ish minutes. So I wanted to know a little bit about what you think um, is holding companies back and what you think uh, we need to be doing to be able to bring real omnichannel experiences to market. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you're raising all the right questions and what we need to consider um, from my perspective in the world of content strategy. But I think more broadly, um, when we talk about service design and, um, and creating more holistic user experiences online and off, the big challenge is always how do we make them consistent and cohesive um, and really, in my eyes, trustworthy. And that's where like a lot of my research focuses now. Um, a lot of what I've been doing is looking at how brands can regain trust, how they can build rapport, 
in an age when customers are increasingly cynical. And when I say customers, I mean uh, citizens that governments may serve. I mean uh, B2B customers um, that, and the folks that we engage with in, in those kinds of um, transactions and vendor experiences. I think in all of those contexts, we're suffering um, across societies and across economies from this sort of insidious cynicism and um, the way that we get past that, the way that that organizations and brands and governments and, and customer-facing businesses, the way they reestablish trust is to empower their audiences. And that fits squarely with the focus of Omnichannel, of evolving our businesses um, and the way that we interact with our customers to be all around their needs, to think of them first. And I think that that's tough. And to get to your question around uh, what's holding our businesses back, it's that because in our daily lives, um, when we go to work, typically the challenges that we faced first are are around how we deal with just other people in the workplace, with our colleagues in other teams. We have to confront those silos, um, acknowledge them and understand them, even if we can't break them down or or get past the way things have always been done. Um, even if we can't get past that, we have to acknowledge and understand it and then figure out what are the communication protocols and what are the governance strategies and the processes that we can put in place to ensure that we are communicating across silos um, and creating something that is more holistic for our end users. So that's really what I see as the, the biggest problem kind of facing our work. It isn't an issue of hardware or software. This is not a CMS problem. This is really a, a cultural problem and a political problem. It's the the people that are screwing us up. <laughs> <laughs> Do you find that uh, it, it's something that has to be led by a kind of grassroots cultural uh, movement? Or do you think it's something that the management can bring, bring about real change? I think it's or, something that we need to approach really from both directions. I think leadership in an organization, both the, the upper strata um, as well as individual team leaders and the folks that, that rise up um, to exert their own leadership uh, on teams and through their own work. I think we need to approach it with that kind of vision and guidance. And if we don't have executive level support to break down silos um, and to communicate around the customer's needs first, it won't work. But at the same time, leadership needs to champion a vision that everyone who is empowered to manifest that vision that they can believe it. In other words, if the leaders of an organization um, maybe talk a good game around customer centricity um, and, um, and and operating without silos, but still, if the um, if the compensation structure and reward and recognition programs mm -hmm. are all set up. Mm -hmm. to just advance the views of an individual or to spotlight the work of one person that is kind of going rogue on their own. Um, if that's how we reward good work, that's the kind of work that businesses will continue to produce. So I think we need it both top down to set that vision and then bottom up being empowered to act on that vision and, um, and deploy it through the, the processes and the work that we create. So you talk a lot about uh, messaging architectures in your in your work, um, and I have I had a kind of um, 
you know, flash moment where I was thinking about how the messaging architecture comes from a brand um, and then the user needs come from the market. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what the, 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 well, first of all, I guess what a messaging architecture is for those of the audience who don't know. And sure. then how does a company build a messaging architecture that is the messages that they want to say at, that is customer centric? So how do those sure. two things, you know? Yeah. So, um, and what you're describing, I guess I think of that as kind of a, that Venn diagram between what our businesses are trying to communicate and we understand that by looking at, well, what are our competitors already putting out there in terms of um, their statements, the, the qualities they espouse, and then the products and services that they create that make good on those qualities. Um, and then what is it that our target audience, that shared audience, the audience that we likely share with our competitors, what is it that they're looking for? And then where do we overlap between what we can only do and what we can do best and what our audience is looking for? Where is that overlap and how do we really focus all of our energies there? Um, and uh, the message architecture fits into that because, so the message architecture, to give you a, def a working definition, uh, it's simply a hierarchy of communication goals that reflects the shared vocabulary within the organization. So for example, it might be that, um, that a brand is, wants to communicate that they are innovative, um, not bounded by tradition, but also uh, established, worldly, savvy, experienced, that they have a lot of expertise in, in the industry or around the products that they're producing. Um, and those might be the main qualities, and then we break them out further and provide further detail around that. And the workshop that I'll be teaching at, at OmniChannel X will focus on that. What is it? How do you create it? How do you, what's the exercise that we can facilitate to, uh, to create that? And then how do you apply it across the organization to drive things like your content audit, your choice of, of channels and platforms and how you prioritize investment in them, um, the overall look and feel and how you vary that through those different channels. Um, so we'll be getting into all of that in the course of that workshop. And, um, and then we'll use that to help guide more of those more tactical decisions so that we're making those choices and prioritizing different platforms, not because we've always done it that way, not because somebody really, really likes to blog and just wants to keep on blogging, or not because um, TikTok or, or Instagram or whatever is the hot new thing that people mm -hmm. are all fired up about, but rather because that's right for our communication goals. Um, and we can help set standards and, and kind of a, a rubric for good content and good communication in an organization that way. So it's um, a way to decide what to do and what not to do. Exactly, yeah, because okay. I think in most um, marketing-oriented organizations, there's, um, there's so many different options uh, on the table and so many different platforms and channels that you can pursue. And if you have a, a pretty good budget, um, that's a, there are a lot of options in front of you. And that can be a horrifically daunting thing because more budget does not necessarily mean more time or more creativity or more talent that you can put into creating content for all of those different platforms and then managing it and maintaining it to make sure that there aren't like digital tumbleweeds blowing through it after a few weeks or a few months. We've all seen those kinds of blogs. Um, and because just because you can invest in all of those different platforms, 
It doesn't mean that you should, and it doesn't mean that it would be good to do so because that's when we get into problems around sustainability and platform proliferation. And even if you so have enough budget, clear, when we're saying platforms, you're you're referring to all the uh, available communication platforms, the TikToks, the Facebooks, the your own blog, etc. As opposed exactly. to internal content platforms, which can also proliferate. Right, right. Um, and all the different print collateral and all the different, maybe if you want to just look internally, maybe like the different email newsletters that are coming out of HR and out of marketing. And maybe you're also starting a lunch and learn program or a brown bag session. All of that is great, but it becomes incredibly expensive in terms of time and talent and creativity. And also, if those initiatives are unsustainable, if after a while you have to abandon a campaign or abandon something that seemed like a great idea in the beginning, it also becomes expensive in terms of um, team enthusiasm. It can be demoralizing if you've been working, creating content for a platform internally or externally for a while, only to hear yeah, we're going to pull the plug on that. It's no longer something that, that the company wants to get behind. I'm seeing at my clients uh, a sense of burnout uh, yeah. among a lot of um, design content uh, you know, professionals who are, are kind of feeling they're just, they're being reorged and reorged and re reassigned and reteamed and regrouped and then agile, not agile and uh, et cetera. And they're just kind of going, huh. Um, the, their, the organization is trying so almost frantically to, to continually be reinventing itself that the people who are trying to make this actually happen are just getting stretched. Do you have, um, do you have a, some, some positive anecdotes? Do you have some places where you've seen, you don't necessarily have to name names, but just tell us some, how some organizations kind of made this work better. Uh, I know sure. nobody's nailing it, but who, who, where, where, what can we learn from some organizations that have made some progress? Well, and I can definitely empathize with what you're saying because that kind of movement, because we need to do something different, but we don't know what, so let's keep moving. Yeah. Uh, we get into that problem where we, we think that all movement is progress and it isn't. <laughs> and I think what happens, you're absolutely right. When we're constantly reorging or switching methodologies or, or switching priorities and campaign directions, it's that issue of um, context switching writ large. Like we say mm. how when we're constantly switching context throughout the day, maybe between focusing on email and then digging deep on a project, then having to leave quickly and go to a meeting, and then, oh, now you have to hop on the phone for another meeting, and we're constantly switching like that, that the amount of lag time uh, between those different areas of focus gets really expensive because you've got to wind down and get up to speed on something new. Maybe there's travel time between things, or maybe it's just a matter of saying, okay, now where, what was our priority in this meeting? And if you think about that, not in the context of an individual's day, but in the context of maybe an entire team or an entire company's fourth quarter, that gets really, really expensive, both monetarily and I think also emotionally. But if we pull it back to money, um, when people are constantly investing their time and attention in something, only to hear that, it's no longer important. Sorry, we're, we're abandoning that channel. We're abandoning that campaign. That's when people start losing satisfaction in their work. And that's when they start 
dusting off the resume and looking to go mm -hmm. elsewhere. We know it's it's more expensive to recruit and hire and onboard a new employee than to simply retain someone, continue to invest in in their interests and help them get on board with the company's interests and take part in that um, and to maintain satisfaction there. And it turns out that's also what's best for our customers, just to bring it back to that idea of customer centricity. When they're constantly hearing about new areas of focus from a company or new priorities or, hey, that company that never really had a big environmental focus is now really doubling down their, their investment there. They start to wonder like, wait, you're, you're giving me all new messaging. Can I really believe any of this? And oh. it's that kind of inconsistency that starts to affect our trust in brands and our, our interest in being more than just a transactional customer. Um, but I think to, to look for brands that, that are doing well by this, I think we can look to organizations that don't try to do too much. Mm -hmm. And what they do, they do well, and they're willing to do it for the long haul. They're not just investing in a new platform for six weeks. The idea of fail fast, they realize is really just fail. <laughs> again and again and again. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, and uh, so, so this I comes guess, back to, you, to what we were saying earlier about learning how to say no. I know that a lot of attendees really struggle with that one because they're, they'll be in the middle management kind of area. They will be in, uh, they're not gonna be, let's say, at the C-suite necessarily, but they'll be senior or middle management and they'll go, the, the, the upper, upper management will have Deloitte in and Deloitte will say, you've got to digitally transform and, and just stir the pot, et cetera. And so there's under this enormous pressure. Um, and so you, you have seen some companies who are, who are able to kind of yeah. keep on the rails. Uh, yeah, I guess I, I say to that, don't digitally transform, evolve. And evolution is slow like literally glacial. It's not just a metaphor anymore. And, um, and I think being willing, uh, if you're in that middle management layer, yeah, you're tasked with saying no, both above and below you. And mm -hmm. that's tough. And I think the key to that is when maybe some new edict um, or fiat comes down from on high saying, oh, we really need to do this. Yeah, you've got to kind of provide cover for your team to be able to turn to senior people and say, that's a great idea. Let's figure out how it fits into our long-term plan. Because maybe it is a, a new goalpost to which we want to aim, but we don't just charge there immediately. We have to kind of move slowly and figure out how we're going to take where we are now and use that as a place to evolve to in, in the future. The way I look to that practically is by saying, well, maybe we need to suddenly start sounding more innovative or maybe people in our industry, uh, maybe our target audience is starting to feel kind of kind of shaky with what they're seeing in the marketplace. Maybe we're in financial services and we see with recent market downturns that that people really are looking for a little bit more support and comfort and guidance that things in their long-term investments are going to be okay. Now is not the time to be approaching them with, with short, pithy, truncated sentences. Now is the time to speak to them in longer sentences, fewer bullets, more paragraphs that reassure them with more detail. 
maybe that also empower them with more kind of self-help tools to do their, their own portfolio analysis. Because when people can dig into that kind of research and get answers on their own and then see how they stack up against what maybe financial advisors are telling them, they can feel more confident in their own knowledge. So let's invest in things like, like um, comparison tools on the site, little market analysis tools that our audience can use. Let's, let's couch them in explanatory paragraphs that dig into those details um, and provide them with a sense that this is comprehensive information. I don't need to be scrambling and looking for data all across uh, a dozen different websites. I can come here and know that the, the information that I get here is pretty robust. That so kind of information can be reassuring. So what I'm hearing is that, that it doesn't ha necessarily have to be that, uh, that there is transformative change all, all over the way you work um, if, you, if you are working well, uh, but you can change the focus of the messaging. You can change the, 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 the style, well, I'm careful with the word style because people think I'm in fonts, but um, how change the way that you are communicating to suit the market, uh, the market need, the market uh, emotion as we were. What is the, the current zeitgeist? What is the feel in our audience right now? What are their pressing needs? And then reorient what we're saying to get to the heart of that and to the root of that. That doesn't need to. That doesn't necessarily necessarily require that we blow up our uh, our org structure or or buy a new CMS. Right. I think digital transformation um, is jarring to the people in the organization and the people outside the organization. I don't think your customers want revolution; they want evolution, and that's what most employees want as well. Even if we are seeing a different vision of the future, even if we're shooting toward that, mm -hmm. we need some sense of the comfort of familiarity to get okay. there. And I think if you can offer that to your employees in giving them that roadmap of saying, here's how we're evolving, here's what we're doing well and what we're going to keep bringing with us, even mm -hmm. as we bring in new qualities, whether that's new platforms, um, new editorial style guidelines, new content types, maybe a new CMS to work with our existing content that much better. When we combine the new and the old, then we're able to just, then we're able to pursue what's best of both worlds. And mm. I think that that's better for everyone involved. It's also more believable for everyone involved because every time someone in marketing, somebody, maybe the CMO says, we're scrapping everything. We're doing things completely different. Moving forward, we're going to be, um, we're going to be modern, savvy, and intuitive. I guarantee you can leave those meetings and turn to the people that are actually going to be making good on those qualities and say, well, how have you not been modern? How's this going to be different from how you've mm -hmm. done things in the past? And usually they look around and they say, it's new words, but same as it's always been. And that sense of consignment and discouragement, that's not good for any brand, whether you're looking to stay the same or you're looking to evolve. But I think when you can offer people a vision to say, here's where we're going and here's how we're going to get there. And we're not going to be throwing out the debut with the bathwater, but rather working with what we have, working with the teams that we have, figuring out how to work better together. And this goes back to acknowledging the silos and then figuring out what are the communication tools? What are 
what's the frequency of meetings and process to bring people together in new ways that allows us to move forward together because nobody wants to get left behind nobody wants to become like the dinosaur hit by the asteroid either that inspires two questions in me um i've seen and i'm sure you have as well uh some organizations that are truly broken you know the the silo walls are so high um the processes are not fit for purpose um there may be elaborately arcane you know just too many just so many steps a lot of we've always done it this way here so how do you uh square that with what you were just saying about sometimes it's it's we don't you know we don't we want evolutionary change not revolutionary change and uh and then coming back to the 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 practicalities question so uh can you talk us through uh, an example where there was a, a broken organization what did they do differently um concretely what does uh, better look like? So what I've seen work best, even in, as you described, those really, really broken organizations, is look for the pockets of good, look for or create those small pockets of good, champion them, and then figure out how to replicate them. Because change, while we'd love to see consistency that, that goes organization-wide, Sometimes that change, sometimes that evolution, I mean, all evolution starts with a small change kind of response and adaptation to an external pressure that then is able to thrive, that becomes the strongest part of the organization and is replicated across the organization, across the population. Um, And I guess what I'd look to as an example for that um, I've worked with a, a few companies over um, over the past 20-some years where it wasn't a matter of saying, here's how marketing is going to be doing everything differently. Here's where we're, where we're embracing some, some new sweeping change. But instead, a small part of the organization brings me in or they say, you know what, here in the university, we need to be updating things uh, across our, our entire website. But where we really see the most opportunity maybe is in the music department because they're driven by say monetary concerns. Um, I worked with an organization like this several years ago where, um, again, the the music department of the university. Yes. Yeah. Where, um, because of budgetary issues, the, the way, and so much of it in our organizations does go back to budget, uh, and needing to demonstrate the impact of ROI. Uh, but because of how funding was set up there, they needed to make sure that they were always getting people um, attending performances from student performers and faculty performers, because that's what brought the necessary budget into the into that um, department, into that part of the university. And in order to do that, they needed a web presence that was engaging and interactive, where um, where community members could easily see upcoming performances, and where the people um, that were managing the back end within the university, within the college, and then within that particular department could easily maintain the site and then spotlight upcoming performances, maybe share video clips from recent events, and use that to generate um, community involvement, alumni support. Um, as well as additional interest from from prospective students. 
So we used that as kind of the, the opportunity to, to demonstrate how this change could work, um, mm-hmm. what behaviors, what processes made everything work better for both the people within the organization and people external to the organization, and then the real impact of that in terms of the bottom line. Because we were able to tie those results to money, people sat up and, and took notice. Also, everyone wants their job to be easier. So when you can demonstrate how things can be easier and how the easier way can be the better way and how that better way can also bring more money into your organization, people tend to notice that too. So we use the music department as, as kind of the, the star example then mm-hmm. to, to roadshow across the rest of the organization. The people that, um, that advocated for change. We're not just the, the people in the marketing department that wanted to introduce new, uh, new message architecture, new forms of messaging, uh, new platforms, and, um, and a new approach to working with the CMS. Everyone had heard from them already. Instead, we let the people in the music department talk about the pros and cons of what they were doing and then the financial benefits that they were reaping. That's, so that's the kind of way to introduce that type of change. So that makes me think of a term that, that I've used with a couple of clients is we need to find the internal case study. We need to find an, an example. Uh, and if we cannot find it, we have to make it. So yeah. get don't launch the enterprise-wide transformative initiative right now. Um, you know, and, and as a consultant, of course, I'm basically saying, don't try to do a whole bunch of stuff right now, even if it's better for me as a consultant. Uh, what you need to do is take your time to find the right example, build it up, and then uh, advertise and communicate that story internally as an archetype that other people can can start to emulate. Yeah. I don't want to fail fast and fail big. I want to create small successes that can be replicated. This is and- kind of a plague of that, of the kind of like, the, the, we had the um, move fast and break stuff, uh, old Facebook mm-hmm. mentality. And it's funny, no one that I have in my network really likes that kind of phrase, phrasing. Um, even if they work in startups, it, the the bull in a china shop, which is um, a slur against bulls because they're quite delicate and controlled animals, actually. But uh, that kind of just break in, smash, and in, innovate by flipping the table over kind of way of working. Yeah. I know A lot of the people who I work with and respect don't kind of like that imagery even though we want to help companies innovate that's not necessarily the 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 the, the only do it we don't need so much destroy the other the other factor with that is that it isn't that you move fast and break things when you act that way you move fast and break people and break teams and break the very force that makes our companies great and able to deliver good things for our audiences. Why would you want to do that? Mm. I would rather, I would rather champion people, teach people to do things differently and better champion their good work. Let them be leaders within their organization to demonstrate how other people can find that same success. And maybe it isn't a matter of simply replicating that success. Maybe you tailor the tools then, which Mm. requires not thinking in such a monolithic way, but rather to say, we don't need to be uniformly consistent. We need to be cohesive. And again, that goes back to the whole challenge around silos. What works for some teams or some geographies isn't going to work for all of them. And 
that's okay as long as they can all enjoy success at the end of the day. And then our target audiences can reap that same success and satisfaction of interacting with our brands across whatever um, platforms or channels they choose to use. It brings me back to a, uh, uh, the old, it's a kind of a paraphrasing of the, of the Einstein quote where you need to be uh, controlled exactly enough, but no more. You know, you want enough consistency. You want enough uh, uh, skeleton to keep the, the body up and keep it consistent and robust, but you don't want bone spurs. You don't want so much uh, so much control, so much rigidity that right. the, the body stops being uh, adaptable, flexible, organic. And able to evolve. And that's what our organizations need. If they want to continue to find success in a changing economy, well, we need to be able to evolve within that economy. And evolution always starts in small pockets and then is replicated when there's evidence of its success. And I think that's, um, that's the kind of structure and support that smart leaders offer where it is support, not control, when we can hang on loosely, as it were, um, and then allow our teams to, to grow, figure out the processes that, that work best or figure out how to tailor processes to work best for their needs so that they can continue to support our, our shared audiences. Okay, so that, that brings me back. So let's, we, I know we're almost running out of time. Let's circle it back to, you mentioned marketing a couple of times but then you just talked about uh, shared audiences and going beyond marketing. And for us at the conference at Omnichannel X, all, we do get a lot of marketers because uh, mm-hmm. I think content people feel the pain first of mm-hmm. Omnichannel because con- you can be a designer. You can just be really good at designing websites. You can be really good at designing apps or you could be good at design in general and other people, technical people have to make it mm-hmm. channel or platform specific. Uh, you could be a really good developer or technical person and people bring you different tools, you'll learn them. But if you're a content person, your content has to be everywhere. It's mm-hmm. pervasive and you you need it to be on the app, amplified on social, on social. Um, you need it to be internal, you need to be different versions external. So as a content person, uh, so as, as, as marketers and as content people, we often feel the pain first. So I think we get a lot of the, the attendees coming from that perspective. But we do get... Uh, UX people, um, other types of systems people, process people who are part of the framework that makes it all come together. Can you talk a little bit about where you've seen some some good practical techniques for for going multidisciplinary or how do we get those different jobs roles working together in a cohesive whole? Well, I think um, like you mentioned Facebook earlier um, Mm. and I think they've demonstrated the success of a model of having like content strategy folks embedded in teams. Um, Intercom, I believe, also follows that model um, where content people have an equal seat at the table. Content design people have an equal seat at the table um, with everyone else. So we're not kind of flitting in, working some magic, um, Mm. and then scooting out to work on something else. But we're there from the get-go to to help a project um, or a particular product line or whatever evolve um, mm-hmm. and grow over time. And I think that model is really successful because 
for a few reasons. One, um, it goes back to that um, that notion of the three-legged stool within UX of where of having design, content, and information architecture, or someone focusing on the organization of information and the flow through it as kind of equal legs holding up that stool of user experience. And I think that that model, as old as it is, is still incredibly relevant today. And I mean, maybe you could add a few more legs to it, maybe around like project management and all, um, or product management. But I think that that model also allows for shared responsibility, shared decision making, where we're not saying it's content first, we're not saying it's design first, Mm. but we're able to say, no, it's the experience for our users first, it's customer centricity first. And we're all responsible for that, we're all accountable to that. Um, And and that approach also allows for shared investment and ownership then moving forward. I think that that, that model works really, really well. Um, and then as people migrate off teams um, and onto other teams, they're able to bring their thinking with them mm-hmm. and that sense of partnership, but also um, more, I guess, longitudinal vision than to say, uh, Here's how we've done it on other teams. Here's how we've done it with other product lines. Let's continue that spirit of partnership as well as um, the consistencies in maybe the the models that we used or the style that we used um, to kind of grow that over time as well. And I think that works well in, um, in more traditional organizations as well as on more agile teams and in more agile organizations. So that, uh, my last question, uh, the, so I had a client recently, they called it the squad model, where they had representatives from, and they would get together and they would do their work, and you had that representation from the different disciplines. Uh, how, how have you seen organizations prevent then isolation? Because then you are the one content person, and how do you create community by discipline and say, and, and control as well? So I am, the, I am the representative on this team, and I'm, you know, I, I'm, the, I'm the equal voice. How do you make sure that that person isn't going rogue compared to the other 30 other content strategists? I mean, I I saw this model work well 20 years ago at Sapient um, when it was a more traditional creative agency. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've seen it work well at small, mid-sized 50-person agencies as well, where I've had the opportunity to be a part of those teams where... Yes, I might be staffed to particular projects um, and come together with my design counterpart, my um, uh, my user research counterpart on those teams. But then once a week, I'm gathering with all the other content strategists or maybe all of the other creatives are coming together every two weeks. And that's our opportunity to checkpoint work. Um, and then I think the physical design of our spaces can help support that too, where you might staff a team where they have their their war room or their team room, and that's where everyone on that team is working together. But then I go back to my desk that is with the, all the other content strategists, or maybe I go back to my Slack channel periodically too. That's all the other content strategists. And I think those models where we're creating physical spaces or virtual spaces to allow for frequent conversation those are cropping up organically as well. I mean, I, I see just in um, in the different Slack channels and Slack um, groups where I participate frequently, how there is that opportunity to come together and say, 
you know, I'm working on this type of project. Can I just checkpoint it with a few other folks? This is my process. Um, do you think I should be bringing in maybe any other activities or how would you approach this kind of client challenge? And those spaces are cropping up organically. And I think when companies can support and encourage them, that's great for, um, for always being able to check in and have that, that sense of connectivity, but also for professional development and mentoring and growth because you don't necessarily find that on your project team, but you do find that kind of going back to your um, professional family as it were. Fantastic. I think that's a great, uh, a great message to end on because I think that's what we're trying to create at Omnichannel X is that mm. check-in uh, with the wider family. Those people who believe in customer centricity, those people who believe in uh, talk, humbling themselves to talk across disciplines and get together around how we make customer experience and the whole conversation work uh, mm -hmm. in our in our industry in the wider industry of business uh, um, or, or as you said um, nonprofits in the in communication content uh, design etc how can we all check in get together and, and share some best practices and support right. each other so what we're trying to do and I'm, I'm, I'm so glad that we can help you be part of that is turn those moments into a real industry movement um, and and change customer experience for billions of users around the world. So I'm really looking forward to, to seeing you in person in June and uh, to any, and all of our listeners. I uh, if you if you can't uh, can't wait to hear more, then you need to join us in Amsterdam. Uh, well, we'll be having Margot, myself, and and many others who are yet to be announced. We hope to see you there. The calls for speakers is open until November 22nd, 2019, for the 2020 conference. And registration is going to, super early registration, super early bird registrations will open on October 23rd. So check out the website, omnichannelx.digital. So it's not .com, that's .digital. Um, for more information, podcasts, uh, newsletters, and updates like this. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for your time, Margo. Thank you. It's, it's been a privilege. Oh. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, and uh, we will talk again very soon. Bye-bye.